This is our series. The, the church has left the building for pivotal moments in the life of the early church. Over the next four weeks, this being the first of those four weeks, we're going to take a look at four big stories in Acts. People get the wrong idea about what the Bible is, and they think that the Bible is a story of perfection that we ought to copy. As you'll discover, as we learn about Acts, the story of Acts is the story of constant mistakes. Uh, As Kate said, the early Christians, because the book of Acts is written about the first ever church, which was in Jerusalem, the early Christians both got it and didn't get it. They were both on the ball and off the ball. They were both really moving forward and constantly fighting against what God wanted to do. And so there's there's a great learning for us in all of that as well. Um, a few years ago, I used to uh, uh, help write a column for The Guardian. Well, I didn't have to write, which was the best thing about it. Um, it's, uh, simply every week, a columnist from The Guardian uh, used to ring me up and ask me my opinion about things. But he was an atheist. His name was Matthew. And I did this for about five, six, seven, eight years. I can't remember how many years it was until he stopped working for The Guardian. So he'd ring me up and uh, he'd ask me about what I thought of what was going on in life. If it was still happening, this week for certain he'd ask me about the Labour Party and and, uh, and the the whole argument around uh, uh, Jewish people. He'd ask me about the uh, mayoral election for London coming up later this week. He'd ask me about the health service, all sorts of things. Anyway, one particular week, he rang me, and instead of asking me anything, he said, I want to tell you a story, Steve. And then I want, to, uh, I want you to tell me what you think of this story. So I said, okay, so what's the story? And this is what he said. He said, well, the funny thing is, the other day, he said, you know I'm an atheist. You know I don't do this God stuff. You know, uh, I like talking to you, but I don't like to get involved. He said, the other day, I went to a very big church in London. He said, I won't tell you which one it is, but it's a very big church in London. And he said, and I sat at the back. And he said, it was very interesting sitting at the back. He said, because as people began to gather and the service started, the the leader of the church stood up and he said, and here we are, and we gather together. We gather together with each other, and we gather together in the presence of God, and we gather together in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And he said, and I'm going to, and we're going to ask the Holy Spirit to speak to us this morning. And then my friend, Matthew, he said, it was incredible, Steve. He said no sooner had he invited people to, uh, no sooner had he invited people to uh, allow the Holy Spirit to speak than the Holy Spirit did start speaking. He said, but it was amazing. There was a woman near the front and she suddenly stood up and she said, I am the Lord your God. And Matthew said to me, it was strange. She just looked like an ordinary woman, but there she was. The Lord, our God, had appeared on the front row. And he said, and the woman started to say, I am the Lord your God, and I have blessed you. And you are like eagles who will rise up. You are like eagles who will carry my word around the world. He said, it was amazing. 
But no sooner had she sat down than somebody else stood up near the back. And they said, I am the Lord your God. Matthew's very intelligent said to me, it was amazing this trick that God was doing. Then he said, this guy starts talking, I am the Lord your God. You, my children, you are like a tree planted by a river. And Matthew said to me, I think God was losing his memory because he just told us that we were like an eagle soaring into the sky and now we're like a tree by a river. What's going on? I kind of laughed. And he said, but that's not really what I want to tell you about, Steve. He said, is it possible to turn the mic up just a bit? He said, uh, he said um, the real problem is this. He said, then... Over the next 20 minutes, various people stood up and various people claimed to bring God's word. He said it was incredible. He said, I never heard God with so much to say. And then he told me this bit. He said, but here's my question to you, Steve. He said, then I got on the tube and I made my way home back across London. And as I sat, On the tube carriage, in the tube carriage, I looked around me. It was late at night. He said there was an alcoholic man in the corner, sat there, huddled, not a friend in the world. And I looked into the other corner, and there was an elderly lady who was obviously alone and uncared for. And then there were two kids, he said, who got on after a few stops They were 15, they were 16. It was too late for them to be out. They should have been at home. They should have been asleep. It was a school day the next morning. And he said this, So Steve, I listened. I listened really hard. I listened as hard as I could. But your God was silent. Then he said, Why is it, Steve, that your God seems to have verbal diarrhea in private, but in public he seems to have gone deaf and unable to speak? It was a really good point. Why has God got so much to say to his people in private and so little to say in the public arena? The last time I was asked that question in a different form was this morning when I did an interview uh, for the BBC. I did it at home, they rang me up, and in a completely different way, that was their question. Why is the church retiring from public service? What's gone wrong? What's happened? Why is the church out of sync with what's going on in society? The person I spoke to, I was talking about and the numbers of people who were committed to churches, um, kind of keeping the end up, if you see what I mean. And uh, this person had looked at some research that showed that the under 30s have far less trust in the church than any older bracket. And they made the point that, so what are you going to do when these people in 10 years' time are running the country and running businesses? What's going to happen then? That's why this subject is so important. The church has left the building. Four pivotal moments 
in the life of the early church. So what I would like us to do is flick on to the next screen. Here it comes. That's basically the reading that Kesselware read to us. And uh, I'd like to uh, read it through to you again, because I think it's really important. This is Acts chapter 2. It's the start of this epic story about how the church is turned from being a Jewish sect that met indoors to understanding themselves as a worldwide movement that was for everyone. It was a huge journey to go on, but that journey is still as big today, and it's still the journey that we need to go on. One of my favorite ever theologians, I've probably said this to you before, his name was, he's dead now, Helmut Tielicker. If you're called Helmut Tielicker, I guess you've got to be a theologian, haven't you? You can't be a postman or something like that. So Helmut Tielicker said this about posts, actually. He said, the task of the church is to keep on forwarding the good news of Jesus, the gospel, to new addresses because the recipient keeps on moving. That's what the story of the book of Acts is all about. So, if we look at these uh, first few uh, verses of chapter 2 again. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem. uh, Now, uh, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. The disciples of Jesus were meeting in Jerusalem. Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, he's left them, they're on their own. This is the beginning of a new story. And it so happens that on this particular weekend, there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. They were staying in Jerusalem because it was the Feast of Pentecost. The Feast of Pentecost, which we're going to celebrate in two weeks' time, the Sunday we do the baptisms on, the Feast of Pentecost wasn't a Christian festival, it was a Jewish festival. It was the Jewish Harvest Festival. Sometimes it is called the Festival of Weeks. It's still celebrated in synagogues all across the world. The Festival of Weeks or Pentecost. The Festival of Weeks, seven weeks and one day after the start of Harvest. Pentecost because Pente is 50. 50 days after the start of Harvest. And what used to happen is... Every God-fearing Jew would want to bring an offering to God. You know, like we do at Harvest Festival, sometime in the autumn in schools and churches. So you bring along a can of beans or something like that, and you present it. And of course, it's a leftover of agrarian farming communities where we brought our best to give to God. The farmer is grateful for all that God gives to him or her, and so they bring the best and they present it, a harvest festival. That's what's going on in Jerusalem. Jews from all over the Jewish world, the known Jewish world, have showed up in Jerusalem. And uh, there they are. And then it says, when they heard the sound, and it was the sound of the disciples of Jesus speaking in other languages, as we'll uh, see in just a minute. It says, and when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one of them heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't those who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. 
Amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, what does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, these guys have had too much wine. So let's take a look at the next slide. Here it comes. So I've highlighted two little sections because this story is really well known by Christians across the world and I know it's misunderstood by most of them. And I'd like to explain to you why just in the next few minutes before we take communion together. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem. It says, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And here's this wonderful list uh, that Keswell read of all the places these Jews had come from. The thing about the church until then is it was just in Jerusalem. You could be part of this wonderful story of what Jesus had done for you as long as you lived in Jerusalem and you liked hanging out with the disciples. It was a story for everyone as long as you were like us, as long as you spoke our language, held our customs. It was a language for every, it was a story for everyone, but it had become incredibly inclusive, uh, incredibly exclusive, I should say. It excluded most people. It was geographically based and it was language based. And if you were outside any of that, it didn't count for you. And here come these people, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, etc., 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 from all around the Jewish world. Not the whole world, just the Jewish world. Every one of these guys was either a Jew or a convert to Judaism, as it says in there somewhere. Both Jews and converts to Judaism. Everybody had got into Judaism. Now, Acts starts with one church in Jerusalem. You've got to be where we are. You've got to turn up when we meet. You've got to speak our language. We're clothed similar to us, like our music. You've got to do all of that stuff. But Acts ends in a completely different place. It ends in a place where the church has come to understand that this is an inclusive message for everyone. But that's a long journey. And this is the first of four great steps. We're going to look at another one next week, a third one the week after, and the last one on the fourth week. This is the first great step that the church takes to correcting what they're doing. You see, what this passage really tells you is what Matthew Norman, that was his name, the guy at the Guardian, was poking fun at me about. God's got a lot to say indoors, but nothing much to say outdoors. We've gone quiet in public life. How often do you really hear what the church has got to say about any of the big issues in public life? So, another issue coming up is are we going to be in or out of Europe? And so we listen, as I said the other week to some of you who were here, we listen to the economic argument for being in and out of Europe all the time. What will leave the most pound notes in my pocket or your pocket? What will secure my job, our wealth, our London, our society in the future? Is it to be in or is it to be out? And how do we keep all those migrants out? And how do we keep our society safe and secure so I don't get blown up on the tube? That's what being in or out of Europe's about. But it's not. There's a bigger perspective, a bigger canvas to paint on. I'm a citizen of the world, not a British citizen. Citizen, We are global citizens. Everyone is my brother or my sister. Deny that and you might as well throw the Bible in the bin. 
The Bible tells us clearly on every single page that we belong together, that we're all made in God's image, that we are responsible for our brother and our sister, that you can judge the depth of a society by the care it gives to the most vulnerable people in it. The people who can do nothing for themselves. How do we care for that global society? Do we care about that global society? So why hasn't the church spoken up about this? Why don't we hear the moral and the spiritual reasons for being in or out of Europe? Like Matthew Norman said, we got a lot to say on the inside, but we've gone quiet on the outside. That's what this passage is about. If we flick to the next slide, you see something extraordinarily interesting. It says there, I've highlighted these two bits. These guys from all of these countries around, it says, highlighted, each one heard them in their own language. And then further down, these guys from all these countries say, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, our own mother tongues. Now, this passage has been misused. It's been misused by churches who think about the gift of speaking in tongues. You would have heard about the gift of speaking in tongues. There are some churches in this country that you will, if you will get slung out of if you do speak in tongues. And there will be some churches, there are some churches in this country that you'll get slung out of if you don't speak in tongues. And it's become a big deal. And some people are scared by it, and some people find it spooky, but some people kind of ask, well, you know, why don't we do this in every church? And everybody appeals to this passage, which has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with the argument one way or the other. I don't know what you think about that whole argument. You can talk to me about it afterwards, the gift of speaking in tongues, which Corinthians does talk about, but this isn't talking about it at all. Take a look at the passage again. It simply says this, that these guys from every nation, Jews from every nation, were utterly amazed because they heard the disciples speaking to them in their own languages. In their own languages. They spoke different languages, different mother tongues. The Parthians and the Medes and the Elamites had three different languages. But each one of them, by a miracle of this day, heard the disciples talking to them in their own language. In a European context, it's like someone stands up and they're speaking and everybody hears them speaking in their language, Spanish or Italian or French or English, etc., etc. It's a miracle. And they're going, this bunch of guys, they're only Galileans. But we hear them speaking to us. One of them speaking... Uh, uh, one of them speaking the language of us from Pamphylia. And there's another guy, he's speaking, he's speaking in Arabic. It's incredible. We're hearing them in our own languages. This is how it starts. And who's really learning here? Everyone's learning. But what's going on is, is the disciples are learning that it's their task to speak in the languages of other people. It's their task to take this great message they have and translate it into language that everyone can understand. Like Helmut Tielicke said, 
our task is to take the good news of Jesus and forward it to new addresses because the recipient keeps on moving. That's what we've got to do. Let's take a look at the next slide. The next slide, same verses, but I've highlighted a different bit. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these people who are speaking Galileans? How is it then that each of us hears them in our own native language? I put it to you as we prepare to take bread and wine in just a moment or two, that our task today in central London as God's church is to learn to speak the languages of all the people. To learn to speak the languages of all the people. It so happens that we live in London, which is the biggest cosmopolitan collection of people anywhere on earth. It is the most cosmopolitan city in the world, far more than New York or anywhere else. More than 300 languages spoken in our city, every faith represented. But it's not just about languages and faiths. You know, skateboarders are a little people group themselves. Um, Jesus... The last thing he said to his disciples in Matthew's gospel, chapter 28, you can look it up. He said, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every nation. But the word he uses is ethnic, ethne, where we get ethnic group from. Jesus actually says, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every ethne. Ethne is ethnic group. An ethnic group isn't a nation. It's a bit of a mistranslation. An ethnic group is, well, a a nation will be made up of lots of ethnic groups. And an ethnic group is really skateboarders. And there's an an ethnic group that's into this music or this form of dance. Golfers are an ethnic group. Bankers are an ethnic group. Health workers are an ethnic group. Twenties are an ethnic group. Over sixties are an ethnic group. People who love knitting are an ethnic group. The point is this, that these people heard the gospel in their own language. Now, here's the shocking thing. Because they were Jews from every nation, they all spoke the same language. They all understood Aramaic, a kind of pidgin form of Hebrew, really. So, The disciples could have stood up and addressed them in Aramaic and they would have all grasped it. Here's the more shocking thing. They all understood a second language because they were all people of the Roman Empire. So they all understood Greek. So Peter and the other disciples could have addressed them in Aramaic and they'd have all gone, oh yeah, we get what you're saying. And they could have addressed them all in Greek. And they were all gone, yeah, we get what you're saying. What is it saying? Look, it's highlighted. Aren't all those who are speaking Galileans, yet how is it that we hear them in our own native language? They all spoke Aramaic because Aramaic was the formal language of the Jewish people. They all spoke Uh, uh, Greek, because that was the language of the empire. But here, God addresses them in their own lingo. That's our job. So there are some people who love showing up to church on a Sunday morning to sing some songs and listen to talks and have coffee and etc., etc. And there's some people who work on Sundays. And there's some people who don't get out of bed on Sunday mornings. And there are some people who've never learned to sing in public. And, whoa, the whole church culture thing is completely, 
well, foreign to them. So is it their problem that they're not here or is it our problem that we've got to learn to speak their language? And learning to speak their language means learning to meet in different ways at different times. It means being creative about what we're doing. So we're really blessed because we've got this oasis center that's going to develop this new coffee shop for the first time in the history of this church, I think. I've been here for uh, uh, 13 years. Al's been here for a long time, as of one, one, one or two of you. But the thing is, this building has never been open and accessible before, but from a month's time it will be. From early in the morning to late, uh, last thing at night, you're going to be able to walk in off the street and receive a welcome. That's a fantastic thing. That is beginning to speak people's language. But when they get in, what can we do for them? What can we do with them? And it's not just this building to use, is it? It's all the stuff we're doing in community. So for me, you see, setting up a, a, the, uh, the, the uh, play space, the children's center, or Johanna, or the South Bank School, or the higher education we offer, or the farm, or taking on the library, or whatever it is, these are all ways of beginning to speak people's language. Going to them, sitting down where they are, starting with them, instead of expecting them to trundle into our doors and speak our language and sing our songs. The challenge of this story is as real for us today as it ever was for the first church. These guys in Jerusalem had to learn the lesson. How do we speak the languages of the people groups who God has called us to bring this good news to? So it is for us. How are we going to do that? It's going to involve us all. On the front of the news sheet, actually, we advertise the fact that next Sunday morning there's a lunch and we're going to discuss should we be setting up um, a, a street pastoring group to work in Vauxhall on Friday and Saturday evenings for people who end up there at the end of the night drunk, out of their heads, lost hopeless, so many of them lonely, searching for friendship, intimacy, meaning, purpose, belonging. That's one way of learning to speak the language of people who are not us and start where they are. Does that make sense to you? I'm sure it does. But there are endless ways. And here's the incredible thing. Every one of us is gifted. God has given you gifts. God has given to you skills. God has given to you groups that you understand. Loads of you here understand stuff about uh, stuff about cyberspace and those communities that I'm never going to get. I'm never going to get my head round because. Because I'm never going to get my head around it because I've got too many other things to learn about. Some of you are in, are work in the world of health. And some of you work in the world of banking. And some of you work in the world of PR. I'm trying not to look at anyone in particular. Do you see what I mean? The point is we're out there. The point is that God has put us places. I'm just looking at Joe up at the back because I see him and Joe up at the back, uh, he's got this incredible musical gift but he's also got this way of getting into prisons and uh, working with people in prisons. That's that. Do you see? That's exactly that. You've got to go speak people's language where they are. That's our task. The question is, are we going to do it? Or will we be another generation of Christians who sits in buildings, albeit a posh one now that we've got here, with nice seats and waits for everyone to show up? 
The lesson that they had to learn at the beginning of Acts is that it didn't happen that way. They need to take to the street and speak people's languages, their mother tongue. Not the official language, but really get down amongst the people. And notice what it says right at the the, uh, bottom. Uh, We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? And notice what it says. Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. They're drunk. When we get out there, we'll always get ridiculed. Every time you do something that's new, someone will laugh at you. Someone will tell you you can't do it. It can't be done. You don't know what you're on about. Just in my little life, you have no idea the number of people that used to tell me that I knew nothing about education, so we couldn't start schools. We couldn't start a school here. This school would never work here. It wasn't the right kind of building. Schools around the country we couldn't do. Medical health we couldn't do. Housing we couldn't do. Of course we couldn't do it because I knew nothing about it. But I've learned this. You only learn when you do it. You only learn as you got involved. I was reading the Times newspaper um, uh, about a year ago. And as I read through the Times, which I don't do every day, trust me, I don't do it every day. I probably do it about twice a year. I uh, was reading through the Times newspaper and there was an article about me. I wasn't, I didn't know it was there and I wasn't looking for it. And it simply said this. It said, Steve Chalk, boss of Oasis educationalist and I thought there you go to all the people who've ever told me I'm not an educationalist it's in the times it must be true there you are in other words we learn as we go and these guys learn as they went the question is are we going to make this journey together are we going to make this journey together